0: welcome to episode 68 of Literary Disco, a Truman Capote holiday. Today we will bring back Judge a Book by its Cover, a game in which we read the opening lines of a book and see what we can deduce about the rest of its content. And then we will read three pieces from Truman Capote, A Christmas Memory, One Christmas, and The Thanksgiving Visitor. I am actor and filmmaker Ryder Strong. Joining me are novelist and critic Todd Goldberg and essayist and radio personality Julia Pistel hi guys hello
1: there happy holidays
0: happy almost holidays well we're we're kind of in on well, by I the guess.
2: time you people are listening to it i i imagine a lot of people listen to us at the holiday like they just set up the speakers around the thanksgiving table or christmas or hanukkah or kwanzaa and we're their thanksgiving visitor you know just the three of us helping them get through the corn pudding
1: yeah Once uh, I had a piece airing on this, I believe, and I was at my grandma's house when it came out. It must have been a holiday or summer vacation, and she made us all sit and listen to the radio when it was going to be on, and it was great, but I swear to God, it was the only station in the country that didn't air it at that time, and This American Life came on instead, and she would not accept that my piece, that she couldn't hear my piece live on the radio. It was terrible. I've never hated Ira Glass. Until that moment, You <laughs> made my grandma sad.
0: Ira Glass did it vindictively,
2: <laughs> and that's when you got your revenge. Ira Glass will never hurt my Nana again. Never, <laughs> never. Well, <sighs> you know, we uh, we're gonna talk about these holiday stories. Do you guys have um, before we play our game some big holiday traditions that you guys do? Like, is there mm-hmm. how, how do you celebrate Thanksgiving, Julia?
1: Well, a few years ago. Well, up until a few years ago, it was a pretty standard affair. Um, lots of extended relatives going to the pastel side of the family and eating a lot of, you know, Thanksgiving foods. Then a few years ago, things took a, a major turn, and my family now Uh-oh. engages in a an extremely competitive uh, five mile race uh, outside of Boston called the Feaster Five. Whoa. You can choose to run a 5K or a 5 mile. We started with the 5K, which is 3 miles. Right. And then things have gotten out of hand and now we're all doing the 5 mile and there it's a race and there's prizes and it's all very competitive. There's two well, well, categories. It's not something
2: that your That's family something. just throws on. It's like it's a thing. Sorry, right? the, yes. That uh, there's
1: two levels of this. One okay. it's a thing, thousands of people run it. It's really fun. Okay. But my family and everyone gets a pie at the end. That's what makes it major. Oh. For for this why <laughs> that puts it on, but you know, um,
2: get on TripAdvisor. Just I get, I get all ticket.
0: the calories that you just burned back in the, the form of a pie. Hey,
1: listen, I it makes Thanksgiving feel a lot better to run five miles right before. But what I'm saying, actually, <laughs> Todd, true. is that my family, like the regular race part, wasn't enough for us. And now there are two awards, and there's a trophy that gets passed around every year. One is who's the fastest. And Mm. the other one is, who's the most improved? And last year, I really, guys, I really sucked. I really blew it. So now I'm hoping to go for most improved this year. But yeah, there's like 10 of us who run it, and it's super competitive. And there have been a lot of emails flying around about it. So that's what's on my mind about Thanksgiving.
2: That's really cool. Does everyone train for it? Like, is this, like, is there a a montage scene of you and Apollo Creed running on the, the banks of the Pacific Ocean getting ready for it?
1: Well, we're supposed to all be training separately, but I know who's... There's only, basically, I think only my cousin is training and all the rest of us are really phoning it in. Um, <laughs> Greg, Greg, my husband, dear listeners, never trains and is always like insanely fit. But then he pity runs it with me slowly. And then I just make him <laughs> list things he's thankful for for the entire hour. <laughs> it takes me to do it. It's a very enjoyable experience for me and me only.
2: <laughs> that's he great. Pity runs it.
1: <laughs> oh, he, he like he. he oh, it's, that's love. It's, no, it's really, really annoying because he's clearly in no way winded and it's just fake, like
2: <laughs> <laughs> just able to talk the whole time. Oh yeah, wouldn't it be great, Julia? Wouldn't it be great if you found out that during all your sleepwalking expeditions lately, what you've really been doing is training for this, and then you get out there and you're like, so lucky. "Fucking Carl Lewis."
1: <laughs> I think I might be okay this year because I sucked so bad last year. Um, but, yeah, it's fun. What do you guys do?
0: I don't really... You know, my family's pretty pretty boring, I think, tradition-wise. Um, the only thing that we do that's slightly unusual, and it's something that I have to fight for every year because it gets more and more exhausting, we have a gigantic Christmas tree. Like, it's just a tradition. My... my parents built the house that I grew up in and there's this one the dining room is just a really tall it's a two-story tall room octagon shaped room it's really beautiful all windows and my dad did all the stained glass it's just a beautiful side of the house and you know it's where we always eat and and you know growing up it was like the center of our home and when, when it comes time for Christmas we get rid of the dining room table and just fill the entire area with Sometimes up to, like, a 15 to 20-foot tree. Jesus Um, Christ. Yeah. And
2: and then we import ice skaters in from New York. Well, so you can't find (laughs)
0: Christmas trees that are this big. So what we used to have to do when we were growing up is we would end up um, going outside and chopping um, redwood branches off. Because redwood branches, you know, get really, really long. But, of course, they're really super scrawny and thin because they're branches they're not trees so we'd collect about five redwood branches and tie them together with wire to make a faux redwood indoor christmas tree but it's gigantic yeah uh so that that's always been the tradition my dad hates it because of course it involves chopping down multiple branches getting wire tying them together we have to put put a whole platform in the room so it's gotten less and less and, and of course now you know costco sells christmas trees so my parents are just much much happier getting a a normal christmas tree at costco um so i'm the one in the family that's always like no we gotta have a big old tree we gotta you know and mm-hmm. i don't know why it's like i'm the the, the holiday guy in I my understand. family for whatever reason i think you know my birthday's in december so i think i always cared more because it was like the month of celebrations for me i, uh, I remember
2: vividly one time when the three of us were all in graduate school there was a a uh, tradition of a bonfire and oh God. that was the year Ryder decided to take over the bonfire.
1: <laughs> and it was, I don't know what happened to you. see it
2: from space.
1: <laughs> I have this, it, when I think about that.
0: Look, if you're going to do a bonfire, you do it right. Okay? <laughs> Ryder's like, we're going to find they a distressed house. They couldn't start the fire. We're no going one to could set start it on the fire.
2: fire. We're going to move it here. Yeah.
0: Can I tell my version of this story? <laughs> my version of this story was, it started with Scrabble and wine. <laughs> Okay, Which became many glasses of wine And then we were supposed to go outside To where their bonfire was supposedly happening And the people that were in charge of starting the bonfire Were standing around a giant collection of wood Pathetically lighting matches And not able to even start a fire So I became the project manager for the fire Which kept getting bigger and bigger And then guess what happened? A lot of people showed up And that just meant more hands to help build it into a bigger bonfire
1: I like the way that you're Defense of your behavior that night, which I too remember very <laughs> clearly, is that you took over someone else's bonfire. Yeah. We, I, in my recollection, we were just walking around mm. for some reason, and I, all I. All I remember is like this image of you like lurching through the dark, like your shadowy figure, like finding whole trees I'm never gonna
2: live this down. to
1: throw on there. Never and it down.
2: was huge. And, and Ryder, you, you got you got very like, I need a belt. I need a work belt. and Like you'd put on a safari jacket with all the fucking pockets and you'd filled them with things.
0: It doesn't make sense to me. Like, I, I, I watch a show like Survivor, and when somebody can't build a fire, it's like, really? Come on! You knew you were gonna go out in the wilderness, figure this out. It's
2: just, whatever. Oh, uh, but I like I like the idea of you using these same skill sets for the the happiness of the seasons of building yeah. a giant fuck off yeah. tree in the middle of your house. It's
1: nice.
2: Yeah. Uh, How about you, Chad? What do you do? Oh, so well, we just uh, we just had um, our. First Thanksgiving so typically we have a family Thanksgiving where all my siblings and all of our families all get together and we have a giant eating fest and so we just did that we usually do that um, the week before Thanksgiving and it usually involves my brother who inexplicably has become a barbecue pit master and oh, no. he, oh, yeah. he, like he's he's in the he's in like the union now. Like he gets the <laughs> newsletter, and like he he knows he knows all the lingo. And so he showed up at my sister's house yesterday with all the ribs for him to cook. But he also had his own personal um, apron and hat that he wears while cooking. What is
0: it about barbecue? And this is a so thing. he's like, got I like, feel like when when somebody gets into barbecue, oh, it's, a it's like their life. Drift. And I mean, I I get it. I enjoy a good barbecue. But...
2: He. He went to Kansas City for a week recently wow. just to go eat barbecue. Like, he had barbecue every single day for a week. And he is, like, <laughs> like he is deep into it. And there's four different barbecues, and he's like, this is this one, this is this one, this is this one. Tell me what you think. That one's the double glaze. This one's got the smoke. And I'm just like, man, it's really good fucking pork. I mean, it's just some good pork.
1: Yeah.
2: <laughs> so Barbecue
1: is just an advantage. Advanced version of the bonfire yeah. guy. Yeah, that possesses yeah. rider. Yeah. It's the same thing. It's the same business story Yeah,
2: yeah, um, so we, we always have a, the big pre Thanksgiving Thanksgiving with everybody and then typically My wife and I have our own private Thanksgiving where we just you know eat the food that we want to eat This year we're doing it with her family. Um, we're having a second full Thanksgiving with her entire family and um, but, you know, for Christmas, like, you know, I'm a Jew, obviously, but Hanukkah is a really inconvenient holiday. It's eight fucking days. And, you know, I, I love the holidays, but I don't want to do it for eight days. Um, so we we typically, you know, have our-, our own just private little Christmas that we do. Um, we, ha- we always have a tree and Wendy decorates the hell out of it. Um, I demand that the house be covered in lights. I'm big on having all the lights all over the house. Mm, wow. Um, but when I was a kid... Um, Julia tells me recently that the the fans they love the stories of my crazy mom Mm -hmm. when I was a kid my mom used to always invite over weird fucked up strangers for Thanksgiving Mm -hmm. like dudes she'd been sleeping with from the newspaper and like their fucked up kid who only wore velour Mm -hmm. they'd come for the holidays so there's all these old pictures of us at Thanksgiving at the big long table with whatever new man she was sleeping with and their fucked up kid angrily glaring at us. So a lot of my memories of the holidays from being a child involve men with perms and their fucked up kids wearing velour v-neck sweaters.
1: (laughs) I think that's, and we're going to get to this with the story.
2: Uh, Yes.
1: uh, I think that Thanksgiving is by far the best holiday to have a random stranger at. Uh, To me, Thanksgiving is always chaotic in some reason or another. I mean probably because there's so much extended family descending for just a few hours. So, you know, I'm all in favor of that. The weird friend, the foreign exchange student, whatever, you know? It's
2: good. <laughs> a <foreign exchange> dude. <laughs> Everyone meet Manish. <my> <laughs> they gotta eat, man.
1: They gotta eat.
2: Tell him all about Squanto. He'll be fascinated to learn how we abuse that poor gentleman.
1: Okay. So, um <laughs> shall we do a book by its cover? everybody? Yeah,
2: let's
0: play a game. Yeah, so we're going to do it a little differently this time. Usually when we've done this before, we've um, just had one of us pick three books for the other two to guess what it's about, but this time we decided we're each going to contribute a book to Judging by its cover, which has nothing to do with the cover. Um, I'll go first. I'm going to read the opening... I think I'm going to get through three paragraphs of this, because otherwise I don't think we'll get much into it. And... uh, to see what you guys have to say one a green and yellow parrot which hung in a cage outside the door kept repeating over and over allez-vous-en allez-vous-en sapristi that's all right he could speak a little spanish and also a language which nobody understood unless it was the mockingbird that hung on the other side of the door whistling his fluty notes out upon the breeze with maddening persistence Mr. Pontellier, unable to read his newspaper with any degree of comfort, arose with an expression and an exclamation of disgust. He walked down the gallery and across the narrow bridges which connected the LeBron cottages with one another. He had been seated before the door of the main house. The parrot and the mockingbird were the property of Madame LeBron, and they had the right to make all the noise they wished. Mr. Pontellier had the privilege of quitting their society when they ceased to be entertaining.
1: Okay. I think Mm. I've read this book.
2: I think I've read this book, too. I
1: think, okay, I don't think it's Flaubert's parrot, but that's coming to mind for obvious reasons. Is it Love in the Time of Cholera? It is not.
0: Yeah.
2: There's a parrot
1: feel, early on in that I one,
2: I feel too. like there's a chance for me to solve this puzzle like Wheel of Fortune yeah. with just one letter, but I don't know what that letter is. Um, Mr.
1: Pontellier.
2: I, I feel like I've read it, like, that. As soon as I heard that first line I thought, "Oh, I know what this is," but now I don't have any idea. So uh, it it takes place in France. Yep.
1: Well,
2: it takes it's place French. in France, right? In the early 1900s. Okay. The author is a white man.
1: Wow, great narrowing down.
2: Thanks. <laughs>
0: uh, do you want me to it's give you comment- feedback on any of these points? See here?
2: No, okay. not yet. It's a comic novel that also involves profound, shocking tragedy.
0: Alright, um, do you want me to confirm or deny? Give us a hint. Okay, you, you're wrong on pretty much every, every count. Shit. <laughs> Shit. Okay, so...
1: So it's written by a woman. Is it written by a woman? It's written by a woman. Oh, fuck, I'm sure I've read this book. With, I'm what pretty sure
0: it? you have too. <laughs> Alright, so Hold it's on. definitely not a white man. It's a Give white a woman. Uh, It's not France. It's not France.
2: That's the clue. Yeah, I don't
1: think so either. The clue is
0: that it's not France. It's America.
2: It's the South. It's the American South. There you go. It's 1976. Ish. Oh, God. (laughs)
1: this is like torture is this how you guys feel when this is this is what
2: torture actually is this is like al-qaeda this is what they do to you Uh, they They give you books all right well the only
0: uh, uh, let's just get into it the only thing that 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 was right was um early early 20th century actually end of 19th century it's uh the awakening by kate chopin oh yeah yes. so it takes place in new orleans yes. right or actually not new orleans somewhere in french it's an island right it's Out, uh, yeah it starts on the island outside of new orleans and then goes into new orleans for the rest of the book but um yeah so i the french was a little throwing you guys off a little bit but um well that's but,
1: okay i feel less bad i read that in freshman year but five. you know it's so
0: interesting that ago. you threw out flaubert i mean i know you said flaubert's parrot but um because this is such the American version of uh, right. of Flaubert's. Um,
1: oh, absolutely! Um,
0: you know, wow. Why am I blanking on the name? What is Flaubert's most famous Madame novel? Madame Bovary.
1: Thank you, Jesus. My
0: brain is not working. Yeah, it's so similar to Madame Bovary, and I had never read this book until just about a year and a half ago, and I loved
2: it. It's so good, but it's. Um,
1: it's great. Yeah. So you guys and have read. And it is. Famous and endings. it is dark
2: and. And funny and filled with tragedy. Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. yeah. Okay. I, was so, I was somewhat right. right about that. Todd, you can, just, you can just pull it back, okay? Your guesses are getting really, I really know. big.
2: I feel okay. like I've never read anything.
1: Hmm.
2: Which might be the case. All right, Todd, why don't <laughs> you, you just you go? fake read everything. All right, I will read mine. I will read the opening paragraph. The event on which this fiction is founded has been supposed by Dr. Darwin and some of the physiological writers of Germany as not of impossible occurrence. I shall not be supposed as according the remotest degree of serious faith to such an imagination. Yet, in assuming it as the basis of a work of fancy, I have not considered myself as merely weaving a series of supernatural terrors. The event on which the interest of the story depends is exempt from the disadvantages of a mere tale of specters or enchantment. It was recommended by the novelty of the situations which it develops, and however impossible as a physical fact, Affords a point of view to the imagination for the delineating of human passions more comprehensive and commanding than any of which the ordinary relations of existing events can yield.
0: Wow. That is a wordy, wordy, wordy opening. Yes.
1: Frankenstein.
2: Damn you. Uh, Damn you, Estelle. Is, is,
1: is it Frankenstein? <laughs> Damn you. <laughs> uh, that's awesome. <laughs> yes. yes. Damn you. <laughs> yes. Yes. I am. I love Frankenstein. Frankenstein is a great book. It's 50 times better than Dracula. Uh, It's, um, so you guys all know, this. we probably talked about this on the podcast, but Mary Shelley and Bram Stoker and a bunch of other dudes were hanging out, and they challenged each other to see who could write the scariest story, and both Frankenstein and Dracula were born on that night, basically.
2: Huh. Um, I don't think I knew that.
1: You guys didn't know that? Oh, it's so cool. Uh, And so that's part of the reason that they're like still together in our imaginations but frankenstein is really cool because it has um several layers to the introduction so there's that and then it describes a bunch of people getting together
2: right
1: um and talking and then you know it's it's like a russian doll type story but yeah it's really good franken and frankenstein has so since i studied that those layers, I recall that kind of distant explanation. Also, that's a very nineteenth totally. century thing. Yeah, too. I was gonna. I knew it was a nineteenth yes. century immediately,
0: yeah. but then I was like, "Wow, Darwin's already mentioned right off the top." I was like, "Maybe it's early 20th, um, But yeah, good call. Didn't even have to get into yep. it. Frank Stein, I spent. Great
2: uh, we spent like six months reading this in college. Um, this is not my version I had in college, but what I remember from reading this book initially was I was really shocked that it wasn't you know oh frankenstein bolts in the neck that that it's of course you know a piece of amazing literature from from its time and still exists as a piece of amazing literature i read it again not too long ago um and you know mary shelley turns out great writer writer. pretty smart (laughs) (laughs) great writer pretty smart I didn't yeah. I did not know that about the whole uh came up with it on the same day as Dracula was come up with or was challenged to do so. Wow.
1: Yeah. And there were other people involved too. I can't remember exactly who they were, but um Well,
0: I don't remember that Dracula was involved I know that it was um it was uh Byron and Shelley um cuz obviously she, uh Percy Wow. I'm Percy just so Mary, bad Shelley. Right. So yeah, her he, husband. it was him and then Mary Shelley was there with him. And then, yeah, it was Byron and Byron's wife at the time or his lover. Um, There's actually a new book that just came out about that night, actually, um, and about the sort of different paths that everybody took after that night. Um, But, yeah, it's sort of this infamous. They said they were just going to try and tell the scariest story they could or come up with the scariest story they could. And she came up with Frankenstein, which took her only like a year to write after that night and Mm -hmm. became the great modern work of gothic literature and the the cover of
2: the book that I have actually has the um the sort of cliched Frankenstein picture on the cover of Boris Karloff with the bolts in his neck and in his head which is what I remember from the cover of the book that I read initially I think it was actually Frankenstein you know in the arctic you know standing staring out at the at the ice um you know which is the, the part of the story that I think the modern thinker of Frankenstein has no knowledge of the, you know, the, the giant exploration that goes on. Um, mm-hmm. But, oh, man, I love this book. And I'm, you know, once again, Julia, I feel like you're operating at a level that's different than me and Ryder in that you're a little smarter, you're a little sharper. And I think this is the year you, you dominate that race also. you're You're prepared. That fucking journey on the sea has changed you.
1: Here's the thing, guys. <laughs> Here's the thing. I'm just more into old classics. Uh, You know, you read everything new that comes out. I am like, oh, when do I get to reread David (laughs) Copperfield? You know, that's my life. Um, And yeah, I mean, you both happen to just pick books from the same class. You know, my my (laughs) probably intro to the novel class in college. So, Um. (laughs) okay. Mine's a little different. Okay. It's really hard. Um, but let's see what you can figure out. Um, okay. So I'm just going to read some dialogue here.
2: Okay.
1: All right. What about that one? What the hell are you looking at? <laughs> nice. I know, right?
2: Did someone from Jersey just wait, roll wait. up? <laughs> what the hell are you looking wait. at? Huh? Hold on. Right. Let her get through
1: I'm the clothes. Hey. You're not, you're not going to get anywhere if you don't let me read All it. Right. Okay.
2: I'm
1: sorry. Nice. I know. Right. That guy was an asshole. Honestly, Anne, you have no taste. I'm just telling the truth. So passionate, so mysterious. If you like alcoholic dick bags. Anne, you are so inappropriate. No wonder nobody buys your books.
0: Oh my
2: god. Alright. Weird.
1: This is, I mean, this is basically... Impossible, but I think you can figure out some information. Okay, so...
2: I think it's a YA novel.
1: Well,
0: that's what I thought, but Asshole and Dickbags, they, they wouldn't have language like that in a YA. <laughs> no. Right, it's so it can't a be YA a YA. That, I, but it feels like a YA. I feel like it's more like a gossipy, writerly novel. Like like a... Um, I haven't read it, but like I Just Want My Pants Back. Um, like, sort of, like, hmm. a contemporary... Or really, really recent um, group of like hipsters in New York
2: kind of novel. Um, that's hmm.
1: okay. What was the
2: what was the woman's name? Anne. Is that what you said? Anne.
1: Mm-hmm. And I'll yeah. read you one more sentence here. Okay. Anne, why are you writing books about how alcoholic losers ruin people's lives?
2: Prozac Nation. <sighs>
1: Mm-mm.
0: It's. Uh, uh...
2: There's, there's, It's New York, it's uh, it's Candace Bushnell, it's Sex in the City of the Third Book. That's not a bad call, actually. <laughs> but that's not... Anne is a name of...
1: That's so funny.
2: Anne is not a, a Candace Bushnell character's name, though.
1: Let me give you a hint. Nanny it's Diaries. It's not a novel.
2: Nanny Diaries. It's not a novel. Oh, it's not no. a novel.
0: Okay, it's a memoir. It's a memoir about someone's shoplifting years, or... Man. Yeah, it's gonna be...
2: Oh. Lip. Oh, it's uh Diary of a Face.
1: No. Uh, Good guess. No. It's... Let me give you one more completely confounding clue. It's not an Packer. It fits in with our 19th century theme of the day.
0: What?
1: Mhm.
2: Hmm. With dick
0: bags? <laughs>
2: <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> How is that 1970? People have been okay. calling people dick bags for years. Oh yeah, it goes way back. I,
0: I believe it was Kate Chopin who first. Thou
2: art a dick bag, Tybalt. Thou...
1: All right, I'm just gonna tell any any final guesses.
2: No, <laughs> no I have no clue.
1: Okay, this is um, it's a really really funny um, graphic novel called Hark a Vagrant by Kate Beaton. Have you guys? heard of this? No. no. Okay, it's basically a comic strip, but they all link together. Um, this is from you guys w- would love this. I should send you each a copy. Um, they're comic strips about classic literature, and this one is called "Get Me Off This Freaking Moor, Dude," watching with the Brontes, <laughs> and it's it's all about how Emily and Charlotte Bronte love uh, brooding assholes, and Anne Bronte thought they were idiots. So it's really funny, and that's the first, you know, first series of comics. So it's, huh. really so it's like good.
0: a contemporary retelling of
1: yeah, exactly, exactly. The historical so, um,
0: events of okay. It's
1: history and literature. Um, it's just whatever. Weird. Um, yeah, it's really weird. It's really funny, and there was no way you were ever going to no guess it.
2: We were never going to guess that. No.
1: That's how I stay on top. It's actually
2: a couple lines from my favorite Funky Winker Bean strip. <laughs>
1: Um, excuse me. No, this is a great book. I'm just
2: going to quote
0: some Calvin and Hobbes. You could have. You you could have.
1: That would be fair. I
0: could have, I guess. I don't know, though. Graphic novels on judging a book by its cover. Yeah, that's a
2: little shaky. I feel like, yeah, I feel like that's a little shysty on Julia's part. Listen, guys. I said holidays.
1: I'm a competitor. I'm not here to make you look good.
2: Around the holidays, I expect more out of you, Julia. You should not. than, Than throwing us with a graphic novel.
1: Well, it was also the closest just, thing it, to my computer, so...
2: It's just sad, is what it is. It's sad.
1: <laughs> Whatever.
2: <laughs> Speaking of sad, we should, uh, we should read Truman, some Truman Capote about his wonderful childhood.
0: Yeah. Yeah, let's, um, let's take a break, and then we will be right back. Capote. Capote. Hello,
1: everyone. Welcome back. Uh, welcome back to Larry Disco. Hope you guys had a great Thanksgiving dinner in between part one and part two of this episode. If anyone actually did that, we would love to know.
0: <laughs> I feel like a lot of people uh, <laughs> have told us that they listen while they're cooking. Podcasts are good for yeah. cooking. Ooh,
2: ooh.
0: It's a, a mm-hmm. nice background. And I, have so home,
2: I have to say, Julia, just now I thought you said welcome back Larry Disco. And I was like, who's Larry Disco? <laughs>
0: That's our mascot. <laughs> Larry Disco <laughs> First Larry, of all, Larry Disco. Disco has a perm and, and a tracksuit Larry Disco was at one of your Thanksgivings, Todd When you were oh, a kid God, he And been. he's still there Hey
2: guys, it's
0: Larry Disco Pontificating about World Thank War
2: II you. I'll tell you what We saved those Frenchies asses in WW2 that, that was an actual guy at one of our Thanksgivings Oh man, To my okay. brother's wife Who uh, is French all right.
1: Oh, God. So um, here's what we're doing today, everybody. Tell um, you about that
2: Palace of Versailles now. Want a toilet in it? Actual comment out <laughs> of Thanksgiving by a guy who came to visit. Are you serious? Visit. Yep. Versailles. Versailles. <sighs> wow.
1: Yeah. Wow. Ripped Larry from Disco. ripped from the headlines. Okay. So. Um, <laughs> I'm just saying things. I'm just saying random phrases now. That's how I do the podcast. (laughs) Okay, so here's what we're doing today. Um, In celebration of the holiday season, uh, Todd suggested uh, that we read Truman Capote's... Well, first he suggested we read A Thanksgiving Visitor uh, because it is obviously about Thanksgiving. And then we realized that it's part of three um, possibly... I mean, they are linked, but you don't have to read one or the other. But there's three stories that all cover the same period in Truman Capote's life. Um, They're called A Christmas Memory, One Christmas, and The Thanksgiving Visitor. So the first one that was published um, was A Christmas Memory. And that came out in the book Breakfast at Tiffany's, uh, which has the Breakfast of Tiffany's novella that we all know um, and that Ryder hasn't read. But Todd, have you read Breakfast at Tiffany's?
2: I haven't, but I tell you what I do like is that song by Deep Blue Something. And mm-hmm. I said, "What about said, what breakfast about at
1: breakfast at Tiffany's?" And she
0: said, "Yeah, said, uh, uh, I love you. I love that song. No? Yeah, what about
2: okay. breakfast at Tiffany's?"
0: She um, said, I "Do you remember there was like that week in 1997 or in 1998 that was the biggest where it was thing like everywhere, and you could never escape yes. that song? Oh,
2: yeah, wow. And right now, the those guys are somewhere." Guess. What? <laughs>
1: <laughs> i was uh 14 at that time i at love Zing that Green. song I, I know every word of the song it's almost like the
0: same song as two princes
2: remember that song by yeah Suda? that one it's also a little bit like closing time by semi song right. like they okay, all came guys, out about the same time
1: let's get back on track you don't have, have to go home but don't
2: have breakfast at tiffany's she said <laughs> i think I.
1: <laughs> all right um So that came out uh, with Breakfast at Tiffany's, which if you were to buy the book in the store right now, um, has three short stories at the end of it, and this is one of them. Um, And then he wrote a sequel, uh, The One Christmas, and then finally, uh, many years later, I think in 1968, he wrote... The Thanksgiving visitor Um, now these stories were I don't know if they were sold as fiction or nonfiction but they are very clearly stories at least based in the general details of Capote's own life Um, his parents were divorced when he was very young and he did grow up in this house of old people Um, and Truman Capote is obviously most famous for publishing the true crime novel *In Cold Blood* in the '60s, and I guess *Breakfast at Tiffany's* you could say is equally famous. Um, so yeah, so that's what we did. We wrote these,
2: we I read said, these three essays
1: the slash stories. Uh, we can talk about whether we think they are fiction or nonfiction. But first, um, first of all, what did you guys think? What do we make of these stories? Well, let me ask you the question. Impressions. First
2: impressions is *Last Christmas* by George Michael based on either of these Christmas stories? <sighs>
1: Okay, no. What is it, George with the George Everybody knows. Last
2: music? Christmas, I gave, you gave you my heart. heart. Oh, yeah. What a cheesy the very song. Next very
0: next day, day,
2: you gave it away. This,
0: this year. year. <laughs> All right, well, I'll okay. dive right in. This was the first Truman Capote I've ever read. I, I've tried Crazy. to listen to In Cold Blood on audiobook and fallen asleep every time. Never been able to <laughs> wow. get through it. Wow. I know it's probably great and wonderful, um, but I just haven't, I've never done it, so I've never made it through. Um, and so this was my first exposure to him as a writer, and gotta say, I wasn't wasn't super into these stories. Um, I like uh, I like them in my memory more than I actually enjoyed reading them. I don't think there was anything particularly interesting about the prose or artful about it. But when I think about the actual stories themselves, they're nice little cute little holiday stories and there's a there's a there's a, a world that I'm a, I'm curious about um, but I don't know like I can get into why I didn't like it maybe um, after you guys have said some more positive things I don't want to be completely negative yeah, right off the bat So somebody right. somebody want to say something good
1: One thing that's really interesting about Capote is that because of his friendship with people so much older than him in his childhood, and the time in which he lived he really bridges i think the 19th and the 20th centuries you know and these stories live much more in that depression era you know his best friend is like a 70 year old woman um and she's bringing this you know she's never been more than five miles from her house and they really live in this like sentimental zone of of romanticizing the past in that way but then as he aged and wrote more and more you know, he really was such a modern figure. He was openly gay. He was pretty weird. He wrote sympathetically about murderers. Um, so this is just kind of a weird, almost Mitch Albany experience of him writing these little par- Christmas parables, which is very strange once you know you know where his life went and what some other things he wrote about were. But, writer, uh, I disagree with you. I think there are... Um, I I think the opposite of what you think, which is like the plot of the stories were sentimental, but I think that there were bursts of the prose that I am familiar with that were really interesting. So, like in The Thanksgiving Visitor, he's describing his bully, and while something, while Truman's getting beaten in school, um, the phrase is like, he had a citric smile. And that's a very strange and beautiful little turn of phrase. And there was lots enough in there for me that I recognized Capote as the writer I knew from his other works, which I love a lot.
2: And in The Thanksgiving Visitor, there's also this great um, description of why he was best friends with this old woman. And it says, Perhaps it was strange for a young boy to have as his best friend an aging spinster, but neither of us had an ordinary outlook or background. And so it was inevitable in our separate loneliness that we should come to share a friendship apart. I mean, there's a lot of subtext in in that. Um,
0: really? Because to me, that's just explanatory. I mean, that, that I don't know. I, I I think I'm just much more into a modern essay style that does less telling, like. I, you know, there's some. I, 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 think you're right, Julia. Like, maybe I shouldn't come down so harsh on the prose because it's not necessarily. It's more a tonal issue. It's more. I felt like this was a sophisticated person writing to a sophisticated audience about rural, poverty, impoverished, unsophisticated life, and that disjunction between the tone of the voice and what he's writing about. To me, it veers either into complete sentimentality or condescension. And like I, you know, both of those things were sort of happening in all three of these stories to me. I didn't feel like there were moments where the story, if I thought about what was being told to me, I'd be like, yeah, that's kind of messed up or there's a lot more going on there. But like. I I don't know, like, just, just when you look at the Thanksgiving visitor and it opens with the, the bully, you know, explaining this the bully, it's like we get the whole the bully's family history, and, like, there's all this explanation about who they are, and even just the fact that he calls the woman he lives with a spinster, like, it just feels like there's a... There's... And it's interesting that, that, that you guys... That there's some debate about whether these are fiction or nonfiction, because it feels very um, uh, planned. It feels very organized. It feels like it's, you know... It's written for a city. It's written by a city dweller for a city dwelling readership. And it's sort of giving them this, this version of his childhood. And I don't know. I mean, just based on what, like when I think about some of the other stuff we've read, that that's nonfiction about, uh, you know, sort of being poor in the country or something, which we've talked about, we've actually read a lot. Um, there's there's an immediacy to it and there's there's a sense of like well, that's just the way life was and there's a simplicity to it and that simplicity to the the tone of, of the writing lends itself very well to capturing you know the experience of uh, this didn't capture the experience for me this told me what it was like and the dialogue is so bad like i don't believe a single word of dialogue that comes out of anybody's mouth it's like it feels like an adult version you know putting in quotes of the things that were said to each other it just never feels real it never rings true to me you
2: don't you don't believe the dialogue of the father drunken sending his son off asking him to tell him that he loves Mm. him
0: i mean i believe that that happened i mean i be- i i don't know it just didn't ring tr- it didn't ring as true to me as like i i if i think about it now like the memory of that story i'm like yeah i can kind of be-, but when i was reading it i kept being like uh, okay well you told me your dad was drunk like you told me what the situation was you told me you know like he just tells you everything that's happening in his life it's very telly. it's just not i don't know
2: yeah well, and I think it's it's part it's part and parcel for the the medium, which was you know these magazines. You know, he he's not going to right. it's not going to be the things they carried. You know, <laughs> in the Saturday Evening Post or whatever it was, McCall's. Well, that's what that's I mean, 65. and it, I'm being
0: unfair too because it's also written in the what the '50s or '60s, and I'm coming at it from a much later yeah more contemporary essay style where we don't need to sort of be told like and then i did this for a living and then my aunt did this and you know she just tells a lot there's a lot of names it's also
2: you know he's he's dealing with some of the cliches of the genre sure but like i i was thinking at the beginning of this of that dreadful book we read the girl next door where the beginning of the thanksgiving visitor is basically the, the beginning of the girl next door you know the of this you know yellowed past the country people The weird neighbors.
0: I thought the same thing, but yeah, but that was to me a clear example of where the girl next door succeeded incredibly well, (laughs) like in just simply presenting life as as it was, and you you got to fill in the blanks as opposed to like detailed that information about you know which family member lived here or what visitor did this and what we did on this holiday or how we... It's like, uh,
1: I don't, I don't yeah, know. Yeah, but I the just... thing is, this is the style of the time. Right. So much the style of the time. And right. what these stories feel like to me, and I think this is what they are, is you know, by the time Capote had written these, he was so far beyond this reality in his life. And these stories feel like someone who has taken their incredibly shitty childhood circumstances and... Told these stories many, many times and romanticized them to a point where they're just a part of their eccentric background rather than something that's still fully emotionally affecting them in the moment. You know, like he's, right. it's really, in, it's really, and now I'm, I'm reading his biography while we're talking and, you know, these do exactly reflect the circumstances in which he grew up, but they don't reflect the existential pain that this <laughs> child must have been experiencing. Right. They feel like a story. They feel like they almost feel like one generation removed of like, oh, when your dad was a boy, but he's really speaking of himself and Capote is amazing in that way and that he came from these these circumstances to being one of New York's, you know, biggest socialites of all time. Um, and how did he do that? He must have done that in part by compartmentalizing this, you know, series of experiences when he was really young into cool stories, you know, meaningful stories. But it does to me feel like he really loves this woman. I mean, Mm -hmm. all three of the stories center around his relationship with this older relative, um, named Sook, who he refers to as my friend yeah. the whole time. And those parts did feel to me incredibly sincere. Well, you, you, I don't know. Do yeah, you guys and buy that?
2: What, one other thing, that, just to piggyback on what you are saying a moment ago, is to put this contextually, you know, his friend Harper Lee wrote To Kill a Mockingbird five or six years before these stories came out. Mm-hmm. So we're talking about the same basic time and place. And Harper Lee is writing, you know, is taking it to that next level in in her novel well and i I, think
1: you guys just to add a little trivia point in here you guys probably know this maybe you don't there's a character in to kill a mockingbird dill the like weird friend Dill, who is based on truman capote so that has always helped me lock into my mind you know this period of his life
2: you know you were talking about the compartmentalization that goes on and the kinds of stuff that he was writing comparatively and you know, he's the the characters that exist in in these three stories in the small town could just as easily have been cut and pasted into To Kill a Mockingbird, and been the next door neighbor instead of the Radleys. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think there's, I, I he can't not know that it's some of this stuff is coming off as sweet and sentimental, which is why I think when each of the three stories takes an inevitable turn towards something dark like when i when i i had read the thanksgiving story years ago i don't even remember when but when we were thinking about doing this episode i suggested it, not even really remembering what it was about um but when when we get to the the story so basically the basic plot of the thanksgiving story is that truman capote's being bullied by this guy whose name is odd henderson um not to set him up for a life of being a complete and total <laughs> screw-up forever, name your child, Odd. Um, but he's been bullied by him and to the point that he is sick of going to school and worried about going to school, and it's horrible and it's been a bad experience for him. And so Sook tells him to invite Odd over for Thanksgiving. He won't, but, but Sook goes and invites him anyway, and odd comes over for thanksgiving and everything is going well until odd steals um a uh, a little trinket and sook lies for him when um Truman capote announces that odd has stolen something sook says no it's still right there and then odd says no i actually took it and storms out um that's the, the basic plot of the story um but it it ends up being a story of how the person that's supposed to be good, in this case the Truman Capote character, ends up looking for vengeance against his bully, which you know that seems perfectly reasonable to me. <laughs> yeah. um, but it's the the book takes a shir- the story takes a sharp turn, and by the end we find out that you know no one has survived this experience you know fully formed. Um, and so it's, it's not a happy story and it's, no one gets the vengeance that they want from it, but everyone is irreparably changed. Um, and I, it's, it's a sort of a pat ending for things, but it also doesn't end up with violence. You know, it just ends up being sort of a small character moment. And I appreciate that. I think that's oftentimes how weird things happen is someone just gets up and leaves and people, you know, talk about it in hushed terms afterwards.
0: Well, you know, I'm, I've always been fascinated by somebody like Capote because it's, it seems like when I first hear about Truman Capote, when anybody first hears about Truman Capote, you hear about him as a figure first and foremost. And, mm-hmm. you know, this, this socialite light guy, who, you know, very strange person. And, you know, there's been multiple movies made about him and the stories are always told about how he would entertain people. Or I don't know. I don't even know that much about him, but I know that he is this larger than life figure. And, I you know I can't help but but feel like that overshadows his his work itself. Now I know in Cold Blood is supposed to be brilliant and amazing, um, and I haven't read it so I I can't. But for me, like reading this, it just felt this felt like very average stories that I would you know that you would find in a women's magazine in the fifties or sixties, and that everyone would be like, right. uh, yeah, okay, that was a nice little. I, I mean, I and I think the world is interesting. Like I am interested in this kid and the military academy that he ends up going to, and this relationship with this old. But all those things are almost beside the way it's written. Like I don't care about the way it's written. Mm-hmm. And I mean, even just Todd, like listening to you try and distill the plot down, it felt like kind of a chore to simplify. <laughs> and if it, you know, when I, and I mean, that, I mean, because I feel that there's something. Um, the, the the language and the way he's writing it almost is it's distancing. It's not making it more mm-hmm. immediate and more concrete. He's he's reflecting back, and you know, I mean, all those things that Julia said, sort of positively. I I, I agree. You can look at them positively. For me, those are all big minuses. Like I just can't get around the sense of like, yeah, like this is somebody who thinks you know that their life right now is really interesting and fascinating. Looking back on a time that probably was really interesting and and weird and but just not. I don't know. The way he's telling it doesn't it doesn't really invite me in enough. It just feels it feels obscured mm. more than anything. It feels like he's trying to make right. it more vague so it has more meaning as opposed to.
2: Well, you just... know, there's something about the vagueness that I found interesting. Like, and you had mentioned it a moment ago, the word "spinster" and the way that Capote describes the spinster women in the um, in the prose makes it sound vaguely like code words that we would associate with lesbians. Mm. Um you know he, he describes them as being severe or manly um and and so part of me is like oh god is, is he trying to tell us that not only were they unmarried but they were gay and then of course Capote was gay. Um and is that are these the code words that they were using in the 1960s so that people wouldn't react, you know, or this is what they thought anyway. And I find or I found while reading it that I was looking for that sort of emotional honesty that we so associate with nonfiction now, which is that you call something what it is, right. you know, if, if someone is a lesbian, great, that's wonderful that the lesbian, that can happily be lesbians their entire lives, but they ha- they couldn't talk about that in 1965 right. or it's, or particularly not 1935 when the, the, the pieces are taking right. place. Um, and so I wonder if that's sort of that missing link here as well, is that he's glossing over, his own strangeness, which ended up being, of course, you know, everything about him, but including, of course, his right. sexuality. And then the oddness of Sook and her awkwardness and her strangeness, which by the way he describes her and, and the things that he attributes to her, maybe it's the same right. thing. I, I don't know. I mean, I mean, that's that I think lingers beneath the story. And because of what we know about Capote, it ends up making me think, oh, I wonder if he's speaking in right. in Code right. for
1: this. Well, and maybe he just didn't know either. I mean, this could certainly be the case that no one ever knew the answer and that he's right. you know he's saying he is saying what he knows, and he never I mean we're talking like a five year old here, so um he might not have ever right. known if they were gay or not. And if his own sexuality right. is a part of the story, we're just so used to this work now. um his bully calls him a sissy, and he says in the narrative, you know, right. he has a point. So, um, right. so that's there. That's completely there. Yeah. Um, I think, I think it was really interesting, and I don't know if you guys feel the same. To read all three of these in a row because mm-hmm. they were intentionally obscuring detail for the sake of the story, and then those details would be related in a different story. Mm-hmm. Um, like, for example, I don't think Sook is named in the first one at all. No. Um, it's okay. told very closely and it's only about her. So he just refers to her as my friend. And then of course, like 15 years later, it's like, Oh yeah, I lived with all these relatives and one was named sook and we were buddies. Um, so it was really interesting to see him speak about the same period of his life in three really, really different ways. I thought, mm-hmm. did you guys find that to be compelling or redundant or what?
0: I found it messy. Hmm. There's an, the the word, Affected comes to mind. Mm-hmm. It felt like I don't know. Like I, I just I, I guess in a way these feel. It makes perfect sense as these were written for magazines. They feel like sort of. I don't know. Like they're just not focused or something. They're, you know, it would have probably been better if he had written an entire book just about this period or something. Like as as they are, they're sort of. I don't know. You know, the the one the the piece that I thought of, that. Brought to mind was the the E.B. White once more to the yeah, lake the essay that we. Read. I was thinking about that too. Yeah. yeah, and like where that essay succeeded so well in doing something that is kind of predictable, you know, a sentimental story about vacation, but making it so immediate and fresh. And yes, it's it's you know suffused with nostalgia and 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 a lot of the same things. But there's something about the immediacy that you feel the lake water and the the temperature, the weather in a way that like this just felt distanced. It felt put on. His voice felt put on. It's like, just call her her name, Sook. Like, why do you have to, my friend and, and she called me buddy and like all these sort of like little weird tricks and ticks that don't get explained and that don't add up to something really well. I, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm not, I'm not super impressed. I need to, I need to investigate Capote more and, and, and investigate, you know, what, his, his good writing, I guess, because I feel like it's unfair of me to judge it based on, because <laughs> well, yeah, I, I, I don't think this is very good. No,
1: I, I agree with you. And I, I thought the same thing when I was reading it. And I think, you know, at the time, this sort of writing was so commonplace. And right. when he wrote in cold blood, that was not a common genre to take no. this one crime and to blow it up with all of these kinds of details, um, feels much more alive and original Because it was, you know what I mean? And you can see how, you know, infusing a narrative and these relationships and these kind of emotional scenarios were, would work much better in a longer form, as you suggest. And, you know, on someone else, I mean, Capote's life was so difficult in so many ways that it's, I, I personally feel like he writes better fiction and not writing about himself. If he's writing nonfiction, he should not be involved <laughs> because, <laughs> because the urge to sentimentalize is too much. Like he has too much information. He could, he knows these stories so well, he can tell them any way he wants rather than trying to find the story, um, in Kansas is, which is the case with In Cold Blood.
2: Yeah. Right. In, these, in these pieces, he can be cute, you know? And, and, right. but see, so that's, I mean, that's part of my, my sort of quandary here is that they're meant to be cute. I think you know yeah the, but they're this they're is meant to charlie be.
1: brown christmas right.
2: shit. yeah exactly right. or they're
0: but, the equivalent of a norman rockwell painting right oh, like, yes. right
2: but they're the Norman gold. rockwell right. with the there's there's a weird darkness that is inside Definitely. of each of them for all of their cuteness and so that's Definitely. what's compelling to me is that even when he's ladling on the sentimentality and the cuteness and the dog and you know and the comeuppance of people and santa claus is in the christmas story all that crap um that we expect it is still also about the fact that he has been um, left with these people by his two shitty parents, Practice. who are going off and having their own lives. Um, it's yeah. still about the fact that he's still talking about the the traumatic ex- events of his life in the space of these these sort of you know holiday curiosities is is what they are. And you can, uh, Julia said that there are movies made of these before. I I imagine that the movies are. In, entirely the, the lightness and the sweetness and don't contain any of the the darkness but also that's just you know us putting into hmm. the stories what we know about capote at least for me but i think your point julia about him writing nonfiction compared to fiction or nonfiction about other people is that's the difference between him and joan didion um you know there's no joan didion without in cold blood and there's probably not joseph wamba without in cold blood um but when joan didion then turned the camera to herself in such towards bethlehem or any of her later works she was just as unsparing on herself and her life as she was on the lives of other people whereas when capote turns it on himself he drapes it with things and that i think that's the key difference between the fiction and the non-fiction that he writes about yeah
1: absolutely i mean capote is to me He aligns with Oscar Wilde and Mark Twain in that way of like this extreme public personality that eventually just crept into his writing so much that, you know, he was his, he bought his own, you know, he drank his own Kool-Aid. You know what I mean? Whereas Joan Didion is just, you know, my favorite nutbag on earth and just committed to right. a life of <laughs> horrifying self-investigation
2: <laughs> your husband's going to be very shocked to find this out
1: uh, but you, you know it's it is i think you're right i think you're you guys are both right mm-hmm. and, I, and i agree but i would hate for someone to read only these and not um go back to some of his other work because he really is some of his prose is just so weird and awesome i love mu- music for chameleons which is a story collection It's great last question is it possible to write a holiday short story that isn't sentimental?
0: David Sedaris, right? Oh yeah. I mean, yeah, you're right. Yeah, that's yeah. a good point. He's the king of that. Like, He's the king. I mean, his review piece where he reviews a, uh, you know, it's a it's a fake review of a children's show right. of a, like a holiday Christmas show <laughs> at the local yes, school yeah. is one of the funniest things I've ever read in my life. That and then the fake Christmas letter. Yep. from the mm-hmm. woman who discovers that that they you know, inherit a daughter or adopt a daughter from her husband's affair in Vietnam. Oh my god, that is one of the funniest things. And I still He's, think
1: The Santa Land Diaries is one of the funniest. That's the piece that made yes. him famous mm-hmm. and it got it so funny. Yeah. It,
0: yeah, there's a collection of Cider's stories called Holidays on yeah. Ice that somebody gave me when I was a teenager and I just I mean, I could I could reread those stories and laugh every every holiday. Well, I was season,
2: I was so. we were driving um a lot yesterday because we went and had our, our pre-Thanksgiving thing and we were listening to the um, the Christmas music channel on Sirius Radio Holly or something it's called and it, why were you doing this to yourself? Uh, well, they like I, I like Christmas music. They like Christmas. I like Christmas music really? Yeah, um, oh my God. <laughs> But it occurred to me as, as we were driving. Such a weird I know I'm a, I'm a horrible Jew <laughs> is what I am. It occurred to me that there's not a really a Christmas song that isn't Really just creepy. Like, Santa Claus is coming to town. Look, Santa Claus should be on fucking Megan's list. He knows where you live. He mm-hmm. knows when you're sleeping. He knows when you've been bad. He's watching you sleep. Yeah. Fuck Santa. Yeah. You know? Or, um, you know, baby it's warm outside. Or baby it's cold outside. Come inside. I'm going to slip you a Mickey and then rape you. I mean, all, mm-hmm. all, of, the, all of the Christmas songs are, are pretty sad and fucked up. Um, and do they know it's Christmas? You know
1: that's a that's wrong that song is it is messed up
2: i love the song it's wrong it it's i wrote Mm -hmm. a piece about it a couple years ago but you know just the fact that they forget that the last time they went to africa and tried to show everyone it was christmas they called that the crusades i think (laughs) you know hey (laughs) let's teach teach everyone about jesus um Ah. but i think there's a there's a certain melancholy that comes along with the holidays um, because it's the natural taking stock of where you've been in the last year and it's mm-hmm. fraught with all those memories of your childhood and you know the expectations of good or bad things that are going to happen at the holidays so i I love Christmas time I love Thanksgiving it's my favorite time of the year we do up the house like I said before um, but it also gets me thinking about um, you know the past and I think that's that's the interesting thing about trying to write a story that takes place on, on those holidays is that everyone brings their own shit to it, you know? It's like trying to write a story about a dead dog. You, you just can't write a lot of dead dog stories because everyone's got a dead dog.
1: Mm-hmm. Wow. Well, I guess on that note, um, everybody go... Uh... Hug
2: your dog. <laughs> okay,
1: hug your dog. <laughs> Hopefully it's really cute like the dog in this story and snores by the fire. Yeah, side. Queenie,
2: who is kicked Queen. to death by a horse. Oh, yeah, so yeah. let's let's examine See, that for those just one minute. little
1: moments of darkness. <laughs> uh, what I was going to interrupt you earlier to say, Todd, is yeah, he also he also just super casually, I think, in a parenthetical mentions his mother's suicide. Right. Um. So those are you know the, those little surprises in the fruitcake, if you will.
2: <laughs> um, what uh, before before we go, we need to know what what's your favorite holiday song, Julia? Favorite holiday song. Mine. Yeah.
1: <sighs> okay. Well, I do really like Last Christmas, but no, the greatest holiday—the greatest holiday song of all time—is "All I Want for Christmas Is You" by Mariah Carey. It's a great song, great jam, and it is twenty years old, which makes me feel like oh my god, Jesus, yeah. Um,
2: All-time favorite uh, Star Wars
0: Christmas album: "Christmas in the Stars." No, I'm just kidding. That is the thing that really exists, though, and
2: I have it. I have a. You introduced yes, me to that god awful so thing. So bad.
0: Um, um. No. Uh. I. Yeah. The first Noel. I'm. A, I think the sad. Yeah. Sort of. It's just a beautiful song. Um, mm-hmm. but I don't, I'm not a big fan of Christmas. Oh no! Grandma got run over by a reindeer. What am I say? That song's classic. <laughs> That's a great one. And that came out like right when I was a kid too. So we used to listen to that and like you know that's that's a clever new take new it was in the 80s but Mm -hmm. you know relatively new take on on christmas songs
2: uh last christmas is my number one most likely but my um my classic uh traditional would be little drummer boy which i know is weird because i'm a jew that's a good but i love i love little drummer boy
1: so, here's another, like, set of Christmas memories for me. Um, I I like going to church on Christmas Eve because I love all the music. And it's, like, everyone knows the music. And it's just, like, a whole new church experience. Um, and I love Hark the Herald Angels Sing, sung in church by happy people oh. who are about to go home and, like, put presents under the tree. That is very I nice. can't
0: stand that song because I was cast <laughs> in a play when I was seven and we, we had to do all the, you know, we were doing a bunch of different songs. It was like medleys and singing and acting and scenes. I don't even know what the hell was going on. It was like some kind of holiday special. But at one point, they were like, all right, who knows Hark the Herald Angels Sing? And everybody raised their hand except me and my brother, the ones who were being, you know, raised atheists. And they're like, oh, well, you guys will figure it out. And so we had to perform Hark the Herald Angels Sing in front of, I don't know, hundreds of people for two weeks, never knowing the lyrics. So all I could, all I all I think about when I hear that song is having to lip sync along in a big chorus you know in front of people like how do you lip sync at the age of seven all I, I knew the chorus I knew hark the Herald angels sing glory to the newborn King that's the only part I knew and the rest was ha, ha." and you just like move and I just have to watch the other kids next to me so I get nervous whenever I hear that song I hate it so much uh. Wow.
2: Wow. I've well, always um, thought that uh, Harold was the name of the angel. I mean, I know that that's not true now, but as a kid, I always thought, what, Hark, there's an angel named Harold coming? What the fuck is that about? Yeah, here he comes. Here comes Harold. We- <laughs> God says
0: hi. <laughs> Harold Angel, is hanging out with Larry Disco. The two of them are uh, Larry Disco and Harry Angel. They, 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 they're bookies. <laughs> All right, and that's going to do it for this episode of Literary Disco. Our show is edited, produced, and saved every week by Tucker Ives. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, and thank you very much for listening.
1: Todd, have you read Breakfast at
2: Tiffany's? I haven't, but I tell you what I do like is that song by Deep Blue Something. And said, I said, What about, what about breakfast, breakfast at, at Tiffany's? Tiffany's? And she said, <laughs> <laughs> Remember
0: the <laughs> film? <laughs> I love you.
2: I love that song.
0: And I and said, what about Breakfast at <laughs>
1: Tiffany's?
0: And she <laughs> said, The <I played laughs> <life laughs> <laughs> film. And Remember, there was like that week where it was like everywhere, and you could never escape that song. Yes. The one thing we got. Wow.